Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. So now you know that, okay, most of our customers are going to be pretty distracted or pretty tired or, or highly engaged. And then you have a choice. You can either meet your customers where they're at, or you can try to move them to a different mindset because that's where you need them to be to engage with you. You've got to be specific about the problem. Then you've got to apply some of the behavioral science stuff. Then you've got to see the effects. This idea that you need to understand the people that you're communicating with, whether it's from a leadership perspective or a customer perspective, is just absolutely vital to success. Hi, this is Colin, and I wanted to ask you a favor. It would really help Ryan and I if you could spend a moment and complete a review of the podcast. Positive reviews help us get out to more people, and we love hearing from our listeners and seeing what people have written. So please, just take a moment and complete a review. Thanks very much for your help. So Colin, a few weeks ago, we did a podcast episode that was based on a very nice note that we got from a listener named Jeff, who asked us if we could give some advice on how to start off with some behavioral science kind of cheap and easy. So what, what are the low-hanging fruit on behavioral science? And I thought it was a, a great letter. It turned out to be a, an interesting episode. And, and the way you and I prepared for it is we both kind of brainstormed a list of things that we could try. Can I just stop you there, mate? Because you said it was an interesting episode, as if to say that some of our episodes aren't interesting. Well, I've, I've been doing some episodes <laughs> without you, Colin, and I find that those are just more interesting. Um, when I, when <laughs> oh, I cut you okay. out of the loop. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you, you haven't uh, you haven't found out about those yet. Right. Okay. As long as I know, then that, that, that's fine. Here at, at the uh, Intuitive Customer Podcast, we're, we're very insecure, is I think the <laughs> message that, that we want you to take away. <laughs> very precious. <laughs> the, the way that, that we, we prepared for it is you and I both kind of independently brainstormed some things. And that was a fun process. And in the process of, of doing that, it made me think not just about what are the kind of the quick and easy, low-hanging behavioral science fruit that people could grab for, but also like, what are the things that, that are required to make this stuff work for somebody? And so I started compiling a, an additional side list that you and I then kind of worked on and refined, and that led to this episode today. So we yep. are going to talk about the five rules for ensuring that behavioral science works for your business. Rule number one is focus on the goals or problems to be solved and not in trying to apply an effect or a theory. When we talked about this, I was jumping straight into the theory stuff and it was you that was going, no, you need to take a step back and effectively go, you need to define what the problem is you're trying to solve first. I put this first on our five rules because this is the most natural thing in the world, right? So the way that we consume behavioral science insights usually is by learning about 
each of these theories. So we learn about the peak end rule, or we learn about framing effects, or we learn about the decoy effect, because that's the way that they're studied. And that's the way that they're presented to us. And so it's very, very natural. And I've, I've done this myself, right, where you learn about one of these new things, and then you go, aha, what can I do with this? How can I apply this? How can I make this work for my business? And as a brainstorming exercise, that, that's kind of okay. But the reality is that we we often end up then shoehorning in a theory that's not right for the problem we're trying to solve because we're so excited about that new theory. Yeah, totally right. So it's, I've got this problem, which things out of my toolkit should I use to apply to solve this problem? That's what we should be doing always. As great as these behavioral science tools are and, and the new behavioral economic stuff that's coming out, sometimes you just need to raise the price or sometimes you just need to advertise, right? It, it's not always a behavioral science solution that's uniquely behavioral science. That's just a set of really powerful tools in addition to everything else we've got. So we should think broadly about what the problem we're going to solve and then use all the tools that are available to us to solve it, including those that are behavioral science and also those that are kind of more traditional. Yeah, it made me think as well that we did an episode a few weeks ago with your two friends. They've since asked that I not refer to them as friends. But yeah, yeah, the, the two acquaintances that I have. Yeah. The two acquaintances, yeah. That used to be friends. That's right. <laughs> Come on the show and lose a friend. Lauren Cheatham and Annie Wilson. That's right. They're behavioral scientists. If you haven't listened to the episode, really good. We'll stick it in the show notes. Not least because you get a break from listening to Colin and I blather <laughs> at each other. We, yeah. we invited in some other people to talk to. Tell me about it. But one of the things that they said, and they're both practicing yes. behavioral scientists. Yeah, they both have PhDs in behavioral science disciplines, but then they now work not in colleges, but work in... In real life. In real life, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that they said, have you noticed it's taken me five minutes to get to this point? That's because I keep interrupting you with more interesting information, Colin. I'm trying to save you. And I've, and I've now virtually forgotten what it was I was going to say. <laughs> and I've now accomplished what I really was trying to do. So one of the things that they said was, and maybe this is this is sort of becomes a bit of a theme of sort of it depends. One of the key points that they made was that you may have a problem and you may sort of apply a tool to that. There are lots of other things that can impact on that, okay? So you can't just use a spanner and go, well, I'm going to use this spanner, I'm going to use it as a hammer, I'm going to use it as a you know, measuring tool or whatever else as, as well. The point was that you've got to be specific about the problem then you've got to apply some of the behavioral science stuff. Then you've got to see the effect. So it's like the experiment has got to be contained. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a great insight that they made around that. And it's a really, really important point. Stay focused on your goals. Know what the problem is that you're trying to solve and realize that behavioral science is just one of many ways that you could try to solve that problem. Yep. Good. Number two, get granular. The idea here, and I've, I've said this on the podcast before, but it bears repeating because it's so important. Yeah. Behavioral science doesn't work in general. It only works in specific. Some of the really cool, interesting, exciting things in behavioral science are when we make these little tweaks, these little nudges 
and it completely changes the way people respond to it. You know, you're going to have yep. people opt in versus opt out. That's such a small change and it shouldn't matter. And it does. That's what's really exciting about behavioral science. But the implication of that is if you're implementing this stuff, you need to get really specific because small changes in how you implement it could result in these behavioral science effects where it really swings the outcome one way or another. So you need to get really specific. And I guess it's that unintended consequences as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So something that you change and you haven't realized that you've also changed this, then therefore it affects that. But you see, that for me, again, is where we get to with measurement, doesn't it? And measuring it and being specific and being contained, basically. Yeah, you need to measure so you know what's going on. You also need to get into the heads of your customers and, and kind of recreate those decision scenarios. So for example, one bit of behavioral science that's very useful is the idea that people tend to avoid extreme options. And right? so there's this extremeness aversion. So, you know, if you have three different options, there's kind of a tendency to go towards the middle option so that you don't have to like have trade-offs that are as extreme. Right? So this is a very common thing and it's really useful. So if you're designing your product line, you might consider, well, why don't we add like a super premium option? Because that'll make our premium option seem less extreme and it'll increase sales of that. That's a great bit of science. But if people are choosing your options, not from your own website where you control the entire assortment, but instead are buying it on the shelf at Walmart or Tesco or somebody somewhere else, then you no longer control that assortment. And so you are no longer the only one who gets to decide what is extreme and what is not. And so if you're designing from your own perspective, like, well, here's our product line. And so there are three or four different options that we sell, but it's being viewed from the customer side in a completely different context, then there's no reason that that principle should hold. You need to get into the context that your customer is going to be in. Let me go on a little bit of a sidebar here. I don't know, Colin. I've been pretty laser focused during this episode. <laughs> I, I don't appreciate your assignments. My brain's getting distracted now, but you're stimulating my thoughts, which makes the change, I have to say. Um, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, dear. So, anyway, about your two behavioral scientists, what were their names again? <laughs> Oh, no, the, the, the sidebar I was going to go down was at this bit about three. It's always fascinated me why human beings like things in threes. That is interesting. Do you know scientifically why is that? Has anybody done any research? Maybe we should do an episode on this. Maybe we should. I mean, I'm, I'm not familiar with any research on that specifically. There was one paper actually written by a, a friend of mine, uh, Sam Maglio from uh, Toronto. Oh, good. Let's get him on the podcast, and then he can not be your friend anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's already got enough reason already. Uh, he, he wrote a paper, and it's been too long since I, I've read it, so I'm going to mangle some of the details. But he did identify that there are these intuitive numbers that people have about stuff. So he right. asked, for example, like, how many authors would you anticipate would be on a scientific paper about X? How many um, players would you anticipate would play in this type of sport that I just made up? Or, you know, it was, it was all of these kind of hypotheticals. And what he found is that there was a, a surprising degree of convergence. People seem to have an intuitive sense for, oh, this is how many of that there should be, or this is how many of that should, there should be. 
there may be an attraction to three for certain stuff, including choice options. Okay, so I don't know if anybody can hear the rustling of papers and everything else, because I've. this is how we decide what episodes we're going to do, because I'm going to write this down, and we're going to do something about this sort of science of three. Because you're right, when you think about it, and we're just going off at a little tangent here, the number seven is important as well, isn't it? Yep. So one of the bits of feedback I got when I wrote my first book back in 2002 was, you know, you need to hang it around something like a theme throughout of it. And the seven seven habits of highly effective people that wasn't my book my first one was building great customer experiences but we talked about seven philosophies for building a great customer experience so anyway let's not use that as a sidebar for the listener hopefully still listening we're going to do something on that because that that would be quite interesting let's go back to your list which is on five why have we got five why have we got three or seven i don't know there I mean, you go. You've, you've said that three is important you said that seven's important and so we now have five i really feel like you've yeah. undercut our legitimacy yeah. we're trying to decline on expectations of our listeners by they want seven but we're only going to give them five we're going to keep them waiting for more we offer a premium service where you can pay to get the additional two. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's an idea, mate. I like that one. Hold on. Let me rustle the pieces of paper again and write that one down. So <laughs> our patient listeners may remember six years ago when we started this episode, we were talking about five rules for ensuring that behavioral science works for you. We've now gone through two of those rules. <laughs> we're asking a lot of people today, Colin. We are. We are. We're doing well. Why not let Colin and Ryan speak at your next conference? As you can hear, they're great communicators and can get over a message in a simple, inspiring, and humorous way. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. All right, so number three, number yeah. three, the third rule, identify your levers. And what I mean by this is there are a lot of great behavioral science theories and findings out there that are just going to be impossible for you to implement in yep. your own customer experience design or your own marketing strategy. Identify what are the things that you control, right? So maybe you control your website design. Maybe you can control your package design. Maybe you can control where you sit on the store shelf or you can control what's going on inside of your restaurant for the experience customers are having. But that, that's kind of your set of levers. That's your set of buttons and, and knobs that you can control. And then you can look and see, all right, well, within, within my domain of control, what can I do? And that will help you narrow down what behavioral science theories and findings are open to you that you have control over. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. The word I really love is deliberate. Yeah, one of the things that I often say when we are talking about a customer experience and we're doing, I don't know, journey mapping with a client or whatever, the point I make out is that most customer experiences are not deliberate. They are accidental. And this is from the perspective of the company. So the company has not deliberately constructed it. Yeah. yeah. And the reason I like deliberate is, you know, if you think of deliberate, it sort of comes from the word liberated. So, you know, liberated, everything is free. You know, you do what you want. Deliberate means that you've been specific. You've tied it down to one thing. You know, you're going to do this. Yeah. And that for me is then the building on what you're saying is that's where you then apply the lever or the lever, as we yeah. would say. Because you want to be deliberate 
And therefore, how are you going to be deliberate? Well, I'm going to use this behavioral science tool because this fits in this environment and is something we can we can do. And that's the lever that we're going to use to turn things on or turn things off or, or turn behavior on or turn behavior off. I really like that perspective, Colin, because in addition to identifying the levers or the levers or the louvers, I don't know, maybe there's some other... <laughs> In addition to when you identify those, the things that you can control, they kind of tell you what's available to you from a behavioral science perspective. But also uh, to the point that you're raising here, it also forces you to realize how much it is possible to deliberate on, how much can be deliberate in your experience. Yes. There's a lot of things that we do without thinking about them to your point. There's a lot of things where it's like, oh, well, of course, customers are going to have to enter this door and exit that door. And, you know, this stuff is going to be there. And it's not something that we've made decisions about so as to maximize the customer's experience. Instead, the decision was made by a lawyer or by an architect or by an accountant. And and it wasn't deliberate from that perspective. So, yeah, I think that this, this exercise of identifying the things that you can control is really useful for multiple reasons. Yeah, I think the other thing to say is we talk about this when we talk to our clients about customer emotions. Customers are using behavioral science or from an emotional perspective, they're feeling things now, okay? So when you're giving your customer an experience today without having listened to this podcast or anything else or implementing any advice, they're using things like extremeness aversion or loss aversion or peak end rule or any of the other things that we talk about. The issue is, is you're not in control. You're not implementing those things deliberately with customers. They are just happening and they could be happening for good. It could help you, but it also could be happening for bad and it could be actively causing you a problem, but you just don't know. So the issue for me is you've got to be deliberate. You've got to think about the consequences of things and think about, yes, in this situation, we need to do these things and introduce these behavioral science principles because they they, they work in there. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important rule. Good, yeah, I love that. So number four, identify your customer's mindset. So a lot of behavioral science will depend on how your customer is approaching what it is that you're doing. So as a real common example, are your customers highly engaged with what you're doing in your experience or in your marketing effort? Or are they just kind of floating by and what you're doing is kind of incidental to to their day? Are they giving you their full attention or are they highly distracted? Are they using their intuitive system to process what you're doing? Are they using their more rational system? What are your customers approaching you with? This gives you your starting point. So now you know that, okay, most of our customers are going to be pretty distracted or pretty tired or or highly engaged. And then you have a choice. You can either meet your customers where they're at or you can try to move them to a different mindset because that's where you need them to be to engage with you. If you're not looking through your customer's eyes at that point of decision as they're engaging with you, 
then your behavioral science interventions are never going to work because so many of them depend on the customer's mindset, the customer's approach. So look through their eyes. What are they what are they thinking? And this is a really, really good one and really important. And it comes to your and my favorite topic of, you know, sort of segmentation and just understanding customers, yes. doesn't it? Absolutely. This podcast is really interesting, actually, because it's making me think of lots of lots of sort of analogies and parallel thoughts. Have you ever read a book called The One Minute Manager? Do you remember the old Ken Blanchard books? I haven't read it, but I know of it, yeah. It's a Ken Blanchard, really good book called The One Minute Manager. He did a load a series of these different books. One of the best books he, he wrote, in my opinion, was One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey, which effectively they're talking about leadership and they're talking about how to go away and lead people. Why am I telling you all this? I assumed it was just because you wanted to tell a story about a monkey. And <laughs> I was excited for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Notice I'm trying not to get distracted by what you're going to say, because otherwise I'm going to forget my point. And, okay. and notice I'm trying really hard to distract <laughs> <laughs> But one of the concepts that Ken introduced in there was what he called situational leadership. Yes. Okay which I won't bore people with now, but it's a really good concept and I've certainly used it through my career. And situational leadership basically means that in different situations, you have to adopt different leadership styles. So I wouldn't tell you at all how to be a professor because you clearly are experienced in that and you know far more about it than I do. However, if you if I was to try to teach you how to play soccer, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you don't know very much about it. And therefore, I may the leadership style that I adopted would have to be different. OK, more of a telling style, as it were, or I think they call it telling, selling, participative and delegation. Yeah, Christ, it shows what an impact that book had on me because I can remember all those boxes. Anyway. Now apply that to what you were just saying. So instead of situational leadership, it's like situational customer or something like that. Yeah. What is your customer's situation? What are they in? And therefore, their mindset. What's their mindset? And understanding that, and I'm sure you could draw up a four box matrix or maybe even more boxes than four. But understanding that situation. Three. yeah, Yeah, good point. Thank you. Understanding those customer situations becomes key because in each of those situations, you could turn around and say, okay, let's assume we've got seven boxes. In box one, this is what we do. In box two, this is what we do. When they're in box three, this is what we do. And different behavioral science principles apply. I, I love that. I love that. And I, and you have, you've talked before about the importance of understanding the emotional state of your customer as they're coming into your experience. I think this is very much in line with that, where, and drawing a parallel back to your your leadership styles and, and situational leadership, if you don't understand the mindset of the people that you're leading, it's going to be real hard for you to know, is this the appropriate point where I really push them and kind of get them out of their comfort zone? Or are they in such a state where that's going to really turn them off and cause resistance, right? So I think that that a lot of customer experience design, a lot of marketing, a lot of leadership is very much about understanding the people you're you're interacting with and understanding their mindset. Yeah, and that was the whole of Ken's philosophy was around 
you've been a professor for a number of years. If I now come in and to start to tell you how to be a professor, understandably, you'd be going, what in the bloody hell are you doing telling me that? I've been doing this for years. So, yeah, absolutely. Maybe maybe that's our next book, mate. Maybe that, that's what I we would need to think about. point aggressively to the suede patches on my, the elbows of my corduroy <laughs> jacket with my pipe and say, excuse me. But, I mean, to that point, feedback that was given to me as a professor in a different style, I would be very open to, right? So this idea that you need to understand the people that you're communicating with, whether it's from a leadership perspective or a customer perspective, is just absolutely vital to success. Yeah, it's a great parallel. I'm glad you brought it up. Good. Okay, so... Number five. Everyone's cheers and go, whoa, I'm glad they've got to, finally got to number five. <laughs> this has been a journey. Now you know why we don't have seven. <laughs> <laughs> we, nobody would survive. <laughs> um, number five, iterate. One of the principles that's baked into behavioral science is that it all needs to be tested. Because so much of the granularity, so much of the specifics matter, that we need to actually get it in there and test it in the situation that it's in. And also because we're dealing with people, people will react to whatever we're doing. They'll get used to it. You know, They might get bored by it. They'll, there'll be additional things that come up. And so it's not enough to just kind of be one and done with this. You need to test stuff out and get it fine-tuned. And then you need to continue to try new things and continue to apply additional behavioral science insights and to, to change what you're doing and, and iterate, constantly update and, and retest and uh, try new things. Yeah. And for me, the bit I would build on top of that, and this is absolutely key. So two things I'd, I'd build on. One is, particularly in the digital space, you can test the hell out of these things yes. because you can do A-B testing and, and it's very cheap and you can you don't have to change loads of things. And the other thing that I love about the digital space, which is my second build, is measurement is just so important. Yep. Baseline measurement of what you're doing today that is not deliberate and then making these changes, however small they may be, and measure the hell out of them and then do the iteration as as you're saying and test things and test things and test things constantly so that is really 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 important yep i, I agree with both of those Okay, Colin, are you ready for me to give the summary five so that we can both go take a nap after yep, this? Yeah, okay. I need it, mate. That would be okay. very good. <laughs> good. So to remind people, the motivation for this list, you and I are both big boosters of behavioral science, and we're very excited by these ideas. We also you know, have tried to be really straightforward where this stuff can be very difficult to implement in real life and actually take these insights and make them work for you. So this is our, our list of five things to do to make the behavioral science actually work for you and your business. So number one, focus on the goal or the problem to be solved and don't just try to apply your favorite theory. Number two, get granular. 
Behavioral science does not work in general. It only works in specific. And so you need to plan at very specific levels. Number three, identify your, your levers. Identify what it is that you can control. You know, Colin's point about the digital space versus the physical space. There's a whole different set of levers that you have, a whole different set of controls. Uh, number four, identify your customer's mindset. You need to be looking at this through your customer's eyes at the point of decision or at the point of persuasion or at the point of experience if you really want to apply these uh, behavioral science insights. And then the last one, number five, iterate. Behavioral science interventions are never done. It's just an opportunity to further refine, further test, further improve. Yeah, and they're really great. And just one last thought that comes to my mind, particularly is with the last one, as you've just said, then one of the reasons they're never done is everything bloody changes all the time. Yes. Yeah. Who thought there'd be a pandemic? <laughs> yeah. The world changes all the time. Customers' expectations changes all the time. And you need to change all the time. So really good list. And again, Jeff, thanks for the inspiration for the list. And if any other listener wants to write in and suggest a topic for us, uh, we're always really grateful. Just contact us at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Or go on to LinkedIn and, and look me up, Colin Shaw. You'll see me there. Well, everywhere, actually. Drop us a message. Always good to hear from our listeners. So thanks very much. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. Just as a reminder, please could you complete a review of the show and that would really help us. Thanks very much. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.